0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson, and delighted today to be joined by uh, two people who I'm sure many of you may already know. We've got returning Guest and guest host, Mr. Alex Pillow. Hey, Tom. Good to be back. Fantastic and first time guest, but I, I'm sure he's named to many of you because of his uh, um, engaging and informative LinkedIn content. Mr. Luke Fairweather, how you doing, Luke?
1: I'm very well, thank you, mate. Is that just a nice way of
2: saying he never shuts up? <laughs> I, I was, I thought Tom was going to say LinkedIn habit it's got to that level.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not um, so maybe we should begin with a little bit of an update, Alex, on what you've been up to since we last spoke.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um
0: A lot, actually.
2: Quite quite a few changes. Like it. Yeah, I think when we originally did the first lot of RegTech Legends episodes and got involved in a few, um, I was working in sort of the partnership space. And then through various sort of uh, movements and opportunities coming up, I've taken this role within the Moody's KYC business unit, uh, which we call Market Strategy, and I've been building out a team that looks at commercial strategy, pricing strategy, inorganic growth, so that's partnerships, MA, and a and some other pieces as well, um, and yeah, I've been having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, still get beaten by Luke semi-regularly on the golf course when hey. I'm not doing KYC, but um, yeah, that's that's me.
0: Nice. Listen, you mentioned M- M&A there, and obviously, uh, can't help but Moody's made a number of acquisitions. Uh, did you have any involvement in the ones that are springing to mind, a company and passport?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I was fortunate to sort of be involved in the the team on those. Like, obviously, it's one of those parts of work where you don't get to necessarily say too much, because yes. things confidential. Obviously, we know the result in, the, in these occasions that both <laughs> of those went successfully through. And now it's sort of doing the work of well, there's actually already some preceding integrations between what Moody's was doing and, and Passport's App Store. Um, so there was already something to build on, but we've been working hard at making that better, making that um, more of a complete package, I suppose, uh, for, for customers. So yeah, I got a chance to be part of that. And I had the handy sort of advantage of having worked for Passport at one stage in life um, where I got to know Luke, uh, unfortunately for, well, I'm not sure for him or for me, um, <laughs> And and being involved in that one that allowed me to be involved in the company one as as well. But uh, very very pleased with the two two uh, acquisitions. Definitely some really really good people at both of them, um, and some pretty cool tech as well. Which is uh, yeah, obviously the the T in RTL. There
0: you go. Very good. So not un- unrelated, as Alex pointed out to Passport uh, Luke. For those that haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, maybe you could introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Luke Fairweather, I am a sales manager uh, with a an Icelandic uh Regtech outfit called Lucinity, um making making some exciting waves um in the space. I've been with the business, as you very well know, Tom, um, not too far off, off, off a year. Um, and I join uh by way of passport. So was um I think the, the sort of first seasoned uh, sales development professional um in the passport business in 2019 and, and really helped um Donald and Co stand up um a biz dev function um and yeah we saw pretty significant success over the, over the few years um that we were there culminating um in that um and the validation of of an acquisition by by a business um like Moody's um so yeah kind of uh, fell in as most do uh, into to sales what feels like a lifetime ago now but then sort of by even greater chance fell into the the world of KYC um, and AML um, and I think grew to genuinely care um, in a way that I always think sounds quite convoluted um, but sort of yeah by process of 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 symbiosis, um, came to genuinely love the the space that we work in um so yeah very excited to be finally um on on the rtl podcast <laughs> the, the good the good thing tom is we've
2: as luke's just proven we now have someone that knows the big words Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not to uh, denigrate any of our prior hosts or uh, guests, oh, well, obviously. <laughs> you and I, I was talking about. Well, well no. as as
1: as is my constant refrain, I spent forty grand on a literature degree. I've got to get something out of it.
0: <laughs> um, so we were we were shooting the breeze, but we? we were brainstorming in advance of uh, getting together. And we thought it might not, might be nice to just catch up on some of the g- recent goings on in the market in the wider world um since we all got together and i'm kind of looking at the list of things here and they perhaps unsurprisingly all overlap in one way shape or form so i don't know what in what order we want to take them but we're talking about tech valuations uh silicon valley bank fallout russia sanctions uh and the russia ukraine conflict Uh, a little bit about crypto And Specific to to you guys, I thought it might be interesting just to compare and contrast the experience of working uh, in the startup world versus the larger corporate. Where should we begin?
1: Well, I think it would be, given the last 15 months of Alex's life, why don't we start with sanctions? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly been a big part the last
2: year and a bit um I think that is and I said this to somebody else recently it's uh that's the most fired up I've been for work I think in any role I've had you know before this in being in this industry or, or since but as Luke said most people fall into it so did I and then as you learn more you start to care more as you start to see the impact it makes when it goes well you start to care more you believe more in it and then you have what happens there and i, you know, I have to caveat this i speak for myself i don't speak for moody's or any of its affiliates or other entities this is purely alex fellow's opinion um but somebody does that or you know putin goes and decides that's the movie he's going to make and you can't do much about it as an individual but i do think you can always contribute and so it's the question is how so for some people who have no connection to anything around sanctions, the most you could do is maybe, you know, donate to the to the, you know valid uh causes in Ukraine or the sort of the right sort of charities. I've seen things in the papers where people have taken in sort of families that have had to flee the the eastern part of Ukraine, um, which is pretty incredible to read about. But if you're in this sector, it's like, well, actually, the more we can help the private sector, which are the front line of government's foreign foreign policy here right sanctions are designed as a foreign policy tool uh, to put pressure on other governments um if we can help them help them do as well as they can at spotting the sanctioned individuals their networks their corporate structures their everything they do that is how they move money around then that's how you can help and it's fairly obvious anyway, like it's always been the case, but I think this highlighted that some in the sector, like who aren't specialists, but they sort of have generalized compliance teams, they, they'll think, well, I screen the lists, I'm doing my job. And actually, we know if you look at the regulation about you know, things about ownership, things about control, things about looking at actual sanctions evasion tactics, that is nowhere near enough. It's, the, it's simply the first step and then you need to do the next bit. So... Yeah, the whole beyond the lists, which kind of became the the catchphrase, if you like, or the the sort of slogan that we we went with, was to try to drive people to understand: you must go further. Anyone that's you know, most of the sanctions are targeted at oligarchs um, on the individual side, which means they're incredibly wealthy with lots of resources. They're probably not opening accounts in their own name; it's through corporate structure. So if you don't understand that, checking the list was pointless. Um, if you are going to look at sort of the sectoral sanctions, how do you know which supply chains run through their areas? Whether that's uh, Donetsk or L'Hansk. you know, how do you make sure that you're not touching anyone or any business that runs through there or, or goods that have been moved through there? Uh, there's some really tricky stuff, sort of, you know, oil, gas, um, got the oil price cap where, yeah, sometimes it's other technology and all you can do is sort of educate. Um, which we've done either with foot leadership pieces or blogs, or sometimes we've had uh, experts on the podcast I do with Moody's now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I still, I haven't really changed my point of view on it over the 15 months. I think it's been great to see how seriously the world has taken it and the level of coordination, which isn't always there. Um, but my opinion is still the same, is that anyone in the private sector should do everything they can to support this move because it, this isn't you know a, a war of convenience this is there's a right and there's a wrong here I don't, I don't think there's yeah. a debate in my, in my opinion um and therefore like you know I've, I've kind of picked my team and I'm gonna gonna try and help them win um in the small ways that I can um and I'd hope others would do the same so yeah that, that's kind of where I'm at with it I don't know if you guys would agree or have other points of view
0: Well, one of the questions I had for you, I think you might have touched on it a little bit there, but to what extent uh, in your conversations with the private sector, have you gotten the impression that they agree with that view that they should be doing everything that they can? I think
2: broadly they agree. They probably wouldn't go to the extent maybe that I do always. I'm I think one of the main things I've learned about myself, and maybe we'll talk about this if we talk about corporates versus startups, is just you know fundamental driver of my personality is competitiveness. Hmm. So when I'm on a team, I'm all in, <laughs> and uh, that probably is a good thing and a bad thing depending on situations. Um, and this one, it could probably be both. But what I get the sense is they're having to balance that with the resources they have, with the stress their people are under. I've heard people on stages talk about team's breaking down in tears just because of the workload and the pressure and the wow. don't want to get this wrong because they do care so much why I so they broadly agree but it's like it's it it is easier to sit on the vendor side and say look hey i've got all this stuff i can help you do more and more and more but you actually need the ability to go and do more and if you already feel tapped out or your team feels tapped out then you don't you can't necessarily take that next bit you say well i've done as much as i can and now i've got to go create capacity somewhere to be able to do more or i've got to get my ceo my cfo to invest more in this and as you know we were talking before we hit record around um you've done some recordings with others i won't name so I don't ruin the surprise but that they'll always talk about sort of aml on sanctions it's a weird kind of thing because even if if you prevent it you're actually costing your business money and and, you know unless you get caught and fined and then it becomes you know the sums add up but if that, so there is that thing if someone doesn't really care about this stuff and they're doing it because they have to it's there's this weird equation they're doing in their head of like you know cost of doing business not cost of doing business i'm not accusing anyone in compliance of doing that but i could imagine it could happen for people who's up under huge pressure to hit quarterly numbers or annual numbers etc um and then that has a knock on effect to how much resource the people that we serve and work with day to day have to you know do everything they can to to put it in my my words
0: we we kind of live in an interesting time, right? Because historically, the, the the narrative is my goal is to deliver shareholder value, right? Yeah, uh, and create shareholder value. And so, you know, faced with a decision like the one you're describing there, which is you know do the right thing, or and potentially cost the business money, or uh, or turn a blind eye and maximize shareholder value. You know, at any other point in history you could see that people would probably be favoring not spending too much time uh on the activity that might cost the business money let's put it that way um it's, it's short term and
2: long short term and long term though right because you know if it comes out then your sure your shareholder value is going to go down hugely on reputation and potential other
0: aspects but um well, hundred percent. But uh, and I, and I think this is the this is like the zeitgeist of the moment. This is um, this is something that bit companies, large and small, are, are kind of trying to wrap their head around right now because we've got the same play, play, thing playing out when it comes to climate change, mm. uh, and you've got activist in, uh, investors who are putting pressure on companies kind of do the right thing, even at the cost of short-term profits. So, and it just feels like we're in a, in a moment in time where I think doing the right thing has never been more important. Uh, and it's part of a seemingly a cu- kind of a cultural change.
2: So I think what I want to be clear on is I don't think there'd be any uh, of these other C-suite individuals who are saying, let's actively do work with this sanctioned person. We know this person's sanctioned, or this yeah. entity sanctioned. But what I can imagine the debate is, is like, how much should we invest to go look in for the risk flags? how far do we go beyond that list to then the ownership how many levels up the ownership do we go do we look at stuff at 25% beneficial ownership or do we go yeah. to 0 to 0.1% um like you can with some of the tools uh do we look at control do we look do we put active mitigation in place to spot nominee directors um how far do we want to go down someone's family tree do we want to look at their in their sons in law and daughters in law as well as just their immediate blood relatives like those are decisions you have to make when you're building out your sanctions program in terms of just purely what are you looking for and that's where I could imagine some people going well what's our risk and do they really understand it and that's hopefully why they have really skilled sanctions compliance professionals there to to make those calls for them and give them the advice but um but you do then need to give them the budget to to make those things work um and that's the that's where I maybe would suggest that not everyone in the private sector is going to be all in, do as much as they can. There's going to be a limit to I've done what I think I have to and more. Is there, is there any more I could get out of myself? That that's the question I'd raise.
1: Yeah. All very, very valid points. And I think you're probably unlikely to find too many that disagree. Certainly in terms of, certainly in terms of, I think the zeitgeist and awareness of anti-money laundering in the public consciousness in a way that I think really hasn't hasn't existed previously I think this this is something of a a pet talking point of mine and uh, and it, it ties in really nicely with with the point you were raising about that kind of the fact that the private sector is effectively at the forefront of of implementing um governmental policy um with respect to some of this stuff um and i think to be honest as is the case with <laughs> all of our culture we owe quite a lot of it to 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 hollywood right um if if you think about even movies like the wolf of wall street if you think about um the laundromat in recent times but even up to and including the fact that the aforementioned, the, the, the likes of, of Graham Barrow being on Panorama and things like this, I think that financial crime has been quite rudely brought into the public consciousness. And I think that um, the, 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 the Russia-Ukraine war has brought that more distinctly into focus. So I think that, look, this is a macro problem. And and you've referred to the fact that, look, a lot of the the individual sanctions are geared towards oligarchs who are well-heeled, well-resourced. And, you know, fundamentally, sanctions probably don't really hurt them, um, which is, you know, not a wonderful thing to say, but I think we have to recognise that. But my kind of, in my more cynical moments, Um, I think, well, there's nothing that we as an industry can meaningfully do to combat financial crime um, insofar as it needs to be actually managed by government, as in there needs to be a mandate from government. Uh, I think, look, regulators have been given powers and they've been given some teeth, but they've also been hugely defunded in a lot of cases um, or under resourced Um, in others. They've been, you know, tasked with increasing competition, which I think may, may be questionable. Um, But I think as, as money laundering as financial crime on the whole permeates more deeply into the public consciousness and, and, and people see real world implications of financial crime, um, up to and including war, as well as modern slavery, human trafficking, um, and the rest of it, um, we can but hope that it becomes an electoral issue. Which I think we all know is when really um, governments will actually start to do something. Is is when they they run the risk of of losing power so to speak yeah
2: has to affect the votes or it has to affect the money right on the economy and so i was at a conference on monday um the amlp forum and like good stat from uh someone from law enforcement was that i think it's 53 percent of all crime is either fraud or cyber and fraud now one in 15 people in the uk have been defrauded in some way so if you start to think where does it penetrate the public consciousness well if you know someone who's been a victim and if it's one in 15, then probably you do um, whether or not they've told you about it or not. But if people start to talk about that and say, Hey, Jeff, you, the next question you have to like, take the education to for the general public is okay. Well, they took the money, but then guess what they did with it. They put it in an account somewhere or they got a lawyer to move it, or they got an accountant to you know do something with it. Why did the lawyer and accountant do that? Well, because they couldn't tell that, you know, it was, it was bad money. Well, why couldn't they tell? Well, because they didn't have effective KYC and AML controls, or maybe the criminal was just that good at hiding, and if so, fair play, but we shouldn't let dumb criminals get away with it, right? Like, I've almost, to a certain extent, I kind of accept that the creme de la creme of that world will not be caught, but I want to make it damn difficult. I want to make it, like, a top 1% a game, and then you catch all the people that are lazy and doing it poorly because you just put the right structures in place. And I think that is how we can... How we can help, right? Um, there's there's the education side, there's thought leadership side, there's providing the tech and the resources, and then it's ultimately trying to bridge the gap between you know the government sector and the private sector, and so saying here's a here's tools that you guys can both use that will help you get to a better place. So maybe a bit more hopeful, um, but yeah, certainly. I mean, the talk I gave on Monday was that we were talking specifically about perpetual KYC as like a form of better control than periodic. I was like, well, technically it's possible. Here's all the checks you would do. And they're all technically possible to monitor. And then operationally, it's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. But politically, it's a question mark. So is there the political will within organisations, within the industry, within the regulator, to push people to be the best? Or do we settle for good enough? And I think that's, the, that's where you can, there's a danger of being disheartened if you um,
1: think too long on it. So there's, there's, a, there's a number of points here. I'm really keen to dig into, and I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of um, that public consciousness point around fraud and the fact that we as consumers, we as individuals feel fraud, so to speak, in a way that perhaps we don't necessarily feel money laundering, i.e. on an individualized basis. Um, and the I think, therefore, the conflation that you get, particularly in some of the kind of fintech or payments market of fraud and AML um, as the same thing, when I, I think... It's, it's all, all, all money from fraud has to be laundered by definition, right? Exactly. Used. So, Exactly. Yeah. But I think there is a conflation of the techniques that you can use to prevent it, um, or the fact that they're not necessarily distinct specializations which i think we could probably pretty well agree that they are um and the other thing that i i mean so pkyc uh, perpetual kyc is is obviously something that is um you know i think if if we're to be brutal about it it's nothing new right um it's just doing proper trigger-based kyc um and i think that what you and the team at Moody's are doing very well is is kind of bringing its accessibility, bringing its potentials to light in the fact that, hey, this is something that you guys should be doing already. Um, and it's perhaps been more difficult to do than periodic KYC because it's much easier to, I guess, cluster people together based on static data points, for example. But yeah, I, I, to, to that point about um, who and when and how I think is the is the is the crucial one.
2: Yeah, I mean the, the research that was done on this, and we had an independent firm do the research. But is that generally those in larger, more mature organisations, or maybe not? Well, we can use the word mature. We can just say older. Um, they rate themselves about a four to five out of ten at KYC generally, especially in the framework of PKYC. Uh, whereas the sort of newer firms, tech firms, tends to be around a six. There's still big room for improvement, right? So, as you say, it might not necessarily be new, but I think putting a drive behind it and making people really start to put in the the groundwork to get there, I think that's the that's the new bit. But so, I know there was a bunch of stuff you wanted to cover today. So, I don't know if you want to <laughs> move us on.
1: Well, I, I, if, if if I if I may, and forgive me, yeah. I, 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 I did, But there's there's uh, one other piece that that you kind of mentioned there, which is around burnout and capacity, I suppose, uh, and the ability for teams to manage, uh, you know, vast swathes of analyzing information, analyzing data, um, using their experience, best practice and expertise to actually come to a decision, um, which, you know, fundamentally is what all of RegTech really is Um, which is getting people to a decision, to a better decision more quickly. Um, And I think you raise, uh, a colleague of mine was, was talking about his experience in in one of the tier one banks um, in recent years. And he said uh, something really, really interesting um, that caught my attention is he said that, for example, when it comes to writing suspicious activity reports um, for a certain class of Analysts, there's almost a, a glass ceiling in terms of their ability to be promoted throughout an organisation because they are the ones that write the best sars. They are the ones that can actually concisely synthesise this information into a sar um, and then obviously feed feed that through to 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 the NCA or or, or or relevant FIU. Um, and so that's something that I think needs to be kind of meaningfully addressed as well. Is if we are going to put the brunt on the public sector of effectively implementing private sector, apologies, private sector. (laughs) Just to check. Uh, Yeah, no, no. um, I am. For for those that aren't aware, I do have a three week old baby in the house. So I'm somewhat frazzled. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's my excuse and I'm sticking with it. Um, Yeah. If we are going to put the, the private sector at the forefront of implementing, Um, yeah, public policy to a lesser or greater extent. And I think, you know, all of the kind of HR or human capital um, factors need to be taken into account because at the end of the day, we are human and we do make mistakes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Here, here. Just to pick up on one thing, you talked about politics. I think there's an interesting intersection between some of the sources of funding to to governments and the effect that that can have on the kinds of governments that we get and the extent to which that is really a factor that's at, at play when people go to the ballot box and i think there's uh, i think that deserves its own episode at some point so uh, keep keep your eye out for that because i am uh, i am determined to to go deep on that okay <laughs> yeah um good so silicon valley bank there are downstream effects to what happened with silicon valley bank even if the acute phase of its distress has been and passed and i mean i i remember um i don't have the dates off the top of my head now but there was there was the point the point where the uk government was working hard over the weekend wasn't there to try and uh, ultimately find hsbc who ended up yeah. acquiring S- silicon valley bank in the uk um i i was actually talking to a friend of mine from the village that i live in who works at a fintech and they were actually unable to make payroll on the friday because not them but their payroll provider had uh somehow got sort of caught up in this and uh one of their investors had to step in and make payroll for the for the whole company in the short term until it was all kind of resolved so there was it it, it didn't really i don't think necessarily showed up on the public's radar that much but there was a real Uh, moment where it was pretty scary and it it looked like it could have had some pretty severe domino effects Um, and maybe some of that's still to play out but just wondering what you guys made of all of that and, and and any thoughts and
1: well the first the first thing that i would kind of say to this is it's very very easy for us in the financial crime risk space to get pretty myopic when talking about risk um because it's financial crime risk uh, and compliance risk that that is our bread and butter It's the it's the sea that we swim in um but risk is a bloody broad church um and i think you know alex working for the organization that he does um could probably attest to the fact that financial risk credit risk esg um, and sustainability are all things that that kind of come together to form you know this as i say broad church um and as i understand it which admittedly is not intimately but as i understand it the 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 crumbling of the u.s uh organization silicon valley bank was effectively down to mismanaging their asset portfolio going going long on on some bonds that just weren't kind of returning the the sort of yields that they needed short term should something kind of catastrophic happen. Um, Please do correct me on that if if I've misinterpreted things. But as I understand it, here in the UK, actually, some of those sort of controls seem to work reasonably well. I think I'm right in saying that the SVB had something like, was it two, two and a half billion um on the balance sheet and and as you say from from what it sounds like having spoken to a couple of, of friends that were in the business although it was a you know one of those weekends that probably caused a few people to lose a few years off their life actually um the kind of protocols seem to work reasonably well um it's why when it, it, in recent times there's been talk of you know um removing some of the ring fencing between investment, commercial and retail banking that was implemented uh, in the wake of the financial uh, crisis of 2008. It it seems to be, um, well, a pretty stout refutation of the fact that that might be a good idea.
2: Yeah, I I won't claim to understand all of the the bond stuff and that you said, the credit risk, liquidity risk, risk risk and um the bits that i had read some articles and i sort of understood it as i was reading and then like a day later you've like forgotten half the words right so yeah exactly yeah i but do so, know th- this
0: is supposed yeah. to be one of the more accessible podcasts so these yeah. people can forgive <laughs> us for not being you know across all the details.
2: <laughs> i i do know obviously as luke referred to uh in the organization i work we work right across the spectrum of different types of risks so there are some people doing loads of work on this and what was interesting is actually there was a a solution that one of them has built and this thing was flashing red for like the last two months in the build-up to it and saying like hey there's stuff here and obviously that's yeah that doesn't help the people now that were working for that bank but it does sort of suggest that that tool is worth something and and there's a role for it to play in these sorts of events um i think the wider tech industry seems From what I've seen in the UK, I think it was actually dealt with really well. Like, uh, you know, won't comment on sort of a color of governments, but just came in. They did say they found a buyer, you know, someone very secure, gone through, the clients can be served. Doesn't doesn't have then a contagion effect. Fantastic. Um, uh, You know, we're still in the short term of that. I don't know what the knock-on effects will be, but it seems like, the best decisions that could be made with the resources available were made without yeah. uh, without the government having to come in and bail out like we went into you know twelve to fifteen years ago, whatever it is. What I think is interesting is you then almost immediately have Credit Suisse, which is actually a probably a bigger deal, but maybe because we're in in and around the tech sector, we think SVP is as important that Credit Suisse is just like this behemoth, right? And again, what I think is interesting there, I won't to understand all of it obviously there's been different thing crime scandals and there was the swiss secrets that went out like a week before putin invaded ukraine and it kind of got swallowed up by that story naturally um so i know there's been scandal in that bank and then i decided to read how poor the the financials were over the course of the year here and there but i didn't know it was actually going to definitely go down like like it has and then effectively be brokered into ubs by the swiss government the interesting thing i think is just that rather than a full-scale bailout the world is looking for other ways of doing this so yes' yeah. we thought about too big to fail and that phrase has been thrown around for 15 years now but um in this case it's almost like too big to fail completely but we'll do something
0: yeah. <laughs> which
1: isn't quite as catchy but it's interesting to observe i think the um and we've almost come full circle here with respect to the the, the political aspect and when you know, I think for me, when Credit Suisse really kind of came onto my radar in a meaningful way, and that's you know, partially by virtue of my relatively short tenure in the industry, but was um, a few years ago um, when they really kind of hit the tabloids with res- or hit the hit hit the papers with respect to um, their exposure. Uh, to um, both archigos and Greensill uh, and the whole GFG alliance um, steel conglomerate here, here in the UK, and I think, look, maybe again, Tom, uh, you've got another podcast coming on, on on the politics and and how the kind of revolving door, how money um, influences our politicians, but uh, it's I think it's probably fair to say that. You know certainly for my money that's that's kind of when the writing was on the wall for credit Suisse um because if you look at the amount of of um the hit that even their share price took um way back you know those few years ago and I think I'm right in saying that it's been pretty steadily downhill um since then
0: yeah well some of the, some of these things are, of course the downstream effects of interest rates rising for the first time in um, well since the financial crisis and I, and i think that's where a lot of this is yet to play out but, but but this is also relevant to one of the things i wanted to talk to you guys about which is is tech valuations and of course the the end of the very free and easy money era is is well and truly here right and and, I, and I'm just wondering how you're seeing that affect businesses either that you work for or you're seeing in the industry
2: probably just add to what you said there in terms of it's the era of you know easy money being over I'd say it's over for this
0: cycle oh god <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: it'll it, it, it come Everything cyclical and oh yeah yeah the interest rates go up and it 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 gets harder and then they come down and it gets a bit easier and it'll go on and on I, I do think there was an absurd period, right, where people were just raising far too much. They were raising more money than they needed to achieve the vision they had. And then they've got venture capitalists who don't necessarily understand the business they've invested in fully, not the nuance. They might have a thesis, but they won't know the nuance. Kind of trying to drive them to greater and greater heights. And then you're kind of expecting this management team or this founding team to like be able to get there with often zero to, you know, or little experience of doing it before. So... It's kind of an odd odd model. I mean, it, once, it was explained to me once by one of the co-founders of Passport when I worked there that a venture capitalist only has to be right one in 40 times. Or yeah. as, I, as I thought of it as a salesperson at the time, it's like, I prided myself on sort of having like a 40% plus close rate because SaaS is 30. And that's like, always oh, what I wanted, was to be 10% better. Um, and it, I was like, oh, these v- VCs who have these like, great titles and cool jobs and whatever, they, they're right 2.5% of the time. That's awful. But they obviously the clever bit of it is, is the the financial modelling all works out, and they're they're not gambling their own money in most cases. So, you know, if it doesn't work out, shrug your shoulders. No one knew if you were wrong for five to seven years, sometimes ten. Um, so there's a chip on my shoulder, clearly that I need some ketchup for. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that bit was interesting. And there's like then these very very high valuations, and you couldn't really see how they got there, particularly when there was so much competition. Um, so. If you look at RegTech Associates, where I think we all know Jason and team, and they've been tracking the growth of RegTech. Right, it's gone from like 300 to 1,500 in not a lot of time, yeah. and that means that if you're in one of the spaces with a low barrier to entry, where it's just a tech play, there's no moat, there's no big data that you've got to go build that takes a lot of time and effort and whatever, then it's like the valuation can only ever be so high because, well, you can it can be as high as you want on the funding round, but on the exit, which is actually what matters it can only get so high because there has to be some element of, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out for the buyer. And if there's, if you're one of 10 or one of 20 providers that do a similar thing, I mean, you've had uh, Dean Curtis write on the the first series of Tech Legends, Tom, you know, vast experienced guy, very successful in the roles he's had. And he was saying like, you don't always need the best product. You need the best go to market. Yep. And if all the solutions are similar, then the outcomes probably not going to differ that much if you're going to put it into an existing go to market engine. And I know that's where the valuations, um, maybe are starting to normalize, but then obviously you have to have people's expectations, uh, correct to the, yes, the reality. I I mean, I, I have seen people raise though that have genuinely that, you know, they're one of one or one of two and they're still raising money or have the option to say no. And, um, I think that's the fundamentals will always win out, right? Like if you've got something genuinely unique and you're one of the only couple of people that can do what you do, then you will find value because you've done something really hard. If you jumped on the bandwagon, raised a bunch of money and did the same thing as everyone else, maybe it's going to be a bit tougher.
1: Sorry, Luke, I think I cut you off. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head, um, Alex, with respect to the reg tech industry specifically, I think all of the data still points to the fact that reg tech is outpacing the wider tech sector in terms of early stage investment, um, especially. And I think that's part of the reason that there is, it is such a competitive space. Um, but to the, the broader tech industry, tech investment space as a whole, I think, um, a friend of mine was, was recently involved in, um, one of the, sort of these incubator type type scenarios and, and having spoken with her, it kind of sounds like there's a lot of people that want to be founders um, and they want to found businesses and they want to wear the black turtleneck and they want to be on Wired or the Forbes 30 under 30, but actually don't really care that much about building a profitable, long-term, sustainable business. Um, And I think you only need to look at you know, count them, Elizabeth Holmes, SBF. Um, I,
2: I've seen this article, right, where it's like they call it the 30
1: under 30, but what about
2: the, you know, 30 under 30, that are in jail. And it's actually like yeah. a ridiculously <laughs> large number yeah. um, or, or on trial or whatever. But it, it's such a good point, Luke. Like being a founder got fashionable and then we've there, there's never been a shortage of bright, hardworking, ambitious people. It's just where is that directed? And if, if it's in fashion to be an investment banker, a lot of them will become investment bankers. If it's in fashion to be a, founder, be a founder, if it's in fashion to be in tech, they'll go there. And it just depends on what the, yeah, you know, I know people in the media often say, we reflect society. I don't normally think they make society. So it's what you choose to profile is where the talented, competitive, ambitious people will go. And we've <laughs> had this, this whole
1: thing. It's such a good point. Well, the, and, and it, it kind of comes back to, I think, the average age of a successful tech founder. In, and this is something that my, my current founder and CEO, GK, um, points to occasionally because it just so happens to, I think, be around his age. But the average <laughs> age of a successful tech founder is about 42. So the the whole kind of picture of the wunderkind, so to speak, the, like let's be honest, Alex, the Donald of the world's. They are very, very rare, uh, a tech founder, a particularly at their first attempt, who actually navigates the naught to one, one to five, five to 10, you know, even if they go on to become the unicorn or go public or even just have a very successful exit. They are diminishingly rare. Like if we were to actually talk about unicorns, that's probably more of a unicorn than a billion dollar valuation. Um you know, I, I think a lot of
2: it's luck as well. I think a lot uh, of it is right right time, right place. Timing. Like you, you, you stu- Yeah, timing is a better word, but you, you stumble into something and then you go, oh, and then it's just like you just hang on um, and ride the wave. But uh, yeah, it's there's that that comes into it as well. So then you come to these valuations and are they being driven by the founders or are they being driven by the people they took money from? And that's always the key question, right? The people that put money in need a certain return. Um, for their model to work at winning at two and a half percent of the time. Um, they accept that a bunch of them are going to fail. That's built into the model. So even if you, even if they got a profit from it, it might not be enough to justify the models. So they'd rather push you on and potentially see you fall um, if it means that the integrity of their modeling works. So... Yeah, I, I say I don't think it's a bad thing, right? It's, it's a good thing that, you know, ambitious people are directing their energies into trying to do new things. But if they don't really care about the problem or don't have the expertise to genuinely solve it, then then you've got to question would their talent be better spent in an organization where it can be directed to a known problem and a, you know, a, a known set of customers. Um, I mean, so I know you wanted to talk a little bit about corporate versus startup and career choices. You know, I think there isn't a right or a wrong. I think it's just what suits the person at the time. One of the things that I really like about being where I am now is that anything we do at a strategy level affects thousands upon thousands of customers, which means tens, hundreds, thousands, potentially millions of people, and then their customers, which is definitely in the tens to hundreds of millions, if not you know, billion plus. And it'd be incredibly hard to have that sort of impact from a startup unless you become the genuine unicorn you know google type business um you can get into 100 customers is a massive deal right like and congratulations to everyone that's done that however you've only affected 100 customers so like do you spend your energy doing that or do you spend your energy affecting a couple thousand plus and yeah i think each person has to think about what they're motivated by because it's not a right or a wrong it's yeah. just- where do so you want to spend your
1: energy at the time? Yeah, there's, that's that's exactly, I think, the, the crux of the matter, mate. Is, um, it's almost a philosophical question, right? Like, you know, how much do we as individuals impact the world? Typically, most of us, probably not that much outside of a relatively small sphere of family, friends, colleagues etc so if you actually take your idea and, and and yeah scale that up and you actually think about yeah at a strategy level the amount of to coin a phrase lives you touch uh, <laughs> um yeah i i suppose yeah you you come right back to it and it's down to your motivations um and yeah i can completely appreciate your uh your motivations there it's, it's i say it's a time of life thing as well you know i've done the startup thing had a great time
2: doing it wouldn't say no to doing it again. But um at, at the time it was all about like, I want to be closer to decisions and and, you know, making changes and whatever. And to be fair, I sort of get that within the the unit structure where I am now. But the overarching thing I sort of compare when people hit my LinkedIn inbox about whatever startup, it's like, yeah, okay, I could do that and I'd probably have a good time. But I'm definitely. I feel like I'm contributing more here right now. And talked about competitiveness earlier. That's sort of what you have to target that competitiveness at. I think for it to be healthy, is how much contribution
1: you make into a team. Uh, and that's that's I guess to to dovetail off that with respect to my own experience and choosing to move away from the corporate. Um, side of things especially as an IC as an individual contributor and I know that you obviously pivoted very successfully away from being kind of frontline sales into a more product and strategic kind of role whereby you're almost impacting more customers as You as you say at a strategic level for myself um, it was certainly a there's a developmental question there as well in in knowing how much I grew from being in a small organization uh, and the kind of, I guess the, the how sharp, how steep is the learning curve when you're kind of at the forefront of more than just your day job, so to speak. So for me, moving back to the world of a startup where actually you are thrown at more than quote unquote just a day job or more than just what's in your job description, perhaps actually for me felt like the opportunity to continue to grow and be more in the more in the guts of an organization as well. Um, you know, something that I, I something I tend to talk about when, especially when junior sort of salespeople ask me about, you know, um, why be in sales? Like, cause it's, let's be honest, it's hard. Um, you get the crap kicked out of you quite frequently. I mean, you talk about your, your 40% close rate, mate. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something to crow about. Um, but one thing that I tend to point to is if you look at a C-suite or if you look at any senior leadership team, more often than not, they will come from a sales or or, or front office type background. And I think the, the fundamentals of that really come back to, you know, as a salesperson, it's not just selling to the customer you're more often than not selling internally and if you're selling internally in an organization with fewer resources and you are competing against other projects or other people's um yeah other people's projects other people's um desires to get things done you certainly learn how to you know without wanting to sound too machiavellian about things you you learn how to politic and and you learn how to um how to navigate those, those kinds of, uh, yeah, those kinds Ob- of diff- obstacles,
2: no. obstacles, exactly. there's, there's books about this. The obstacle is the way I always tell people to go read it when they're moaning about saying hard. Um, Tom, from your perspective, right. are quite preeminent reg tech headhunter, if I can phrase it like that, right? Like there isn't anyone you don't know that matters. Um, sorry, it yeah. probably sounds a bit, a bit cocky, but um, <laughs> Tell me more. I'm, I'm cocky for you, Tom. I'm cocky, <laughs> Tell me for, more. You. I'm cocky for you. Um, so, what have you seen? Like, has have you seen a general shift? Is there like more people that want to go start, so more people that want to go bigger org, or is it, does it depend on the
0: individual like me and Luke are talking about? Um, I think it's like you were saying earlier, it's cyclical and it has been quite cool to go and work at the startups for the last half a dozen years in particular. Uh, and as the access to funding increased, it was also it was also good often from a from a pay point of view, especially if you looked at sort of two, 20, 2021, there was um, certain industries benefited from a lot of venture capital funding, and they really kind of went out to market and were able to attract the talent they needed by offering them substantially more. Uh, it was more pronounced in North America as well, where we did a lot of work over those couple of years. But it tends to be Tends to be cyclical because a lot of those organisations, coming into 2023, uh, you know, laid off 10, 15 percent of staff. I mean, it's, it's, it would be inappropriate to name names, obviously, but there was a point where certain companies, especially in the US, that had raised fabulous sums of money uh, at sort of Series D, they were talking about quadrupling um, their headcount uh, in the course of uh, a year, 18 months, which is months, which is just like a phenomenal thing to try and achieve and people were were already telling me about the uh what their equity would be worth by the time they ipo and we're going to ipo before the end of the year well obviously it, it, it didn't work out that way and some of those people are moving on now and that's kind of par for the course and we but,
1: about- but that 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 four X number that you've just people love throwing around the word scale right yeah and i think there's a lot of people especially in tech that think scale equals big um as opposed to not trying to eat the whole elephant but maybe start with the hoof
0: yeah well it's like it's like the ratios you were talking about that your 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 vc friend alex had had, had mentioned i would be fascinated to know whether that still stands in the current uh, funding mm. environment so do, do does their success rate need to be greater than was it two percent that you said two and a half percent two and a half percent
2: explained to me
1: what sort of what sort of size investments though because presumably if you're looking at seed stage 100 to million dollar investments yeah So i mean win rate must presumably need to be higher just based on
2: the way it was that. the way it was explained to me is that basically what you're looking for is the one in 40 that can go you know a 50 or 100x or more right? In terms of what you invest, what you get out. And that pays for the other 39 that fail. But within that 39, some of them won't fail. They'll have low exits or they'll struggle on and just become, you know, little businesses and you eventually get rid of it um, and sell your stake to somebody. But like, by and large, you only need one big win um, and you, a few honorable draws and then a load of stuff that you lose. And that was sort of how it was explained. So it was less about the and more about sort of the Fractions and the multiples, that and you again, and
1: again, it's your motivation, right? If you're a, yeah, if it's yeah, just no. a lifestyle thing, you've made your money, and actually, you're just trying to provide yeah. access to capital yeah. The, yeah.
2: But I mean, again, it's sometimes it's other people's capital, right? You take it from a pension fund, and then it's the publics, and or some yeah. groups of publics, and then you're taking you're meant to be a professional risk manager. Which, to be fair, this is what that model is: it's professional risk management. It's saying, I know if I'm right one in forty times, which I believe I'm going to be. Then I can give you a return. This is just the way I do it, as opposed to putting it in a you know a tracker, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which you wouldn't pay someone to do for you. Um, so yeah, I mean the what was I going to say? Tom, so you were talking about sort of it's cyclical. You've got the oh yeah, that was it. They wanted to quadruple the size of their firm, yeah. And I've been reading a lot about this recently, and it, I kind of accept it at an intellectual level that a c-suite group will sit down with their board and say are we going to put this much money in and we know that on average we get this much productivity or margin off each sales rep so to hit the number you want us to hit we're going to over hire and get there but i kind of agree with ryan walsh on on linkedin that it's just a horrendous way to treat the people that you're putting in those roles you're putting them in positions to fail and these people come out and like it's the classic you know they drank the kool-aid right like we're gonna ipo and like yeah we're on the team and it's like if you saw that you were a number in a spreadsheet in that room that you're not in and you're not part of the discussion how would you feel and some people might go hey easy come easy go if they're going to pay me you know 30 percent bump in base and i'm going to make some commission and i'll move on absolute respect to them because i have it i can't do it because emotionally i want to feel like i'm on the team i need to be in the room making some of those calls or fighting back against those type of calls um and saying no like if you want to scale to use Luke's word proper you know the way I would like to see it done is yes you might maybe double the size of the team rather than quadruple but then you're going to do better tech better strategy right like you should be trying to increase the win rate rather than just the number of wins so that's the metric I track for the team I've set up here on has our commercial strategy been successful is are we incrementally increasing the percentage of deals we go into and win as opposed to just the number of dollars that we bring in um, or that the team brings in so If you're affecting a percentage, you're effectively helping every rep that gets hired into the business and giving them the best chance to earn what they want to earn. And as Luke said, sales is hard. People are normally in it for the cash. So let's give them the opportunity to get what they wanted.
0: I think there's a a few things that we can kind of pull together here. You know, we talked about founders and it being cool to be a founder, uh, but the age of most successful founders being more like somewhere in their 40s. I can completely believe that because there's uh, there's benefits to having experience working in a number of different environments. So if I had to look at the people that I have met that I think I am have been most impressed by as founders, they've often got a combination of working at large companies and startups. And there are certain things that you you would typically associate with a larger organization, some corporate discipline, which you could see being useful. And then the the desire to move fast, break things, and and not be too boxed in by how things are already done that you would associate with a startup. You kind of need both of those if you're gonna survive in an environment uh, where you're going to have ups and downs, you know, you could just get lucky on timing. But if you're going for a period like we're in right now, where market conditions are a a little bit more challenging, you can imagine that some professional experience where you've you've taken a few knocks, you know, it's not always going to be easy to access funding it's not always going to be a buoyant market you're going to make decisions accordingly There's, it's going to be advantageous well, if, if we're going
1: to be brutal you want as much to know what you don't want as what you do want
0: right you learn you learn most from your mistakes right the the best lessons i've ever learned was when i completely screwed up and it was a humbling experience and you think right well i want to try and make sure that that doesn't happen again
1: <laughs> we we i think we as a species define against things as much, if not more so than we define for them. I think more often we are minded to be negatively against something than we are positively for something.
0: Hmm. If that's not we're getting quite philosophical here aren't we we're quite philosophical.
2: this is this is why luke beats me on the golf course he starts talking in riddles and i'm so confused i can't hit the ball uh, <laughs> definitely nothing to do yeah, with we'll, my lack
0: of, lack of ability yeah we'll call it
2: that mate
1: <laughs>
0: what time did you need to finish now. now now yeah do, do you actually well, ignore okay me, ignore the crypto bit well, I think there's. This has been a fun, a fun, free-wheeling conversation. I think we covered a lot of ground. I, I, I don't know um, how much sense anyone's going to take away from it. But I have found it fun, and that's the main reason uh, that we do these things, isn't it? Exactly. Um, it's how it's how you keep us friends, right? So I'm just <laughs> creating content, <laughs> creating content, creating content, and hosting golf. There you go. There's. I think we should probably it deserves another one of these at some stage. I think there's a few more things that we might want to want to catch up about, but um, any thoughts that either of you wanted to leave us with before you go or any plugs that you want to offer? Um, I was at a, a wonderful event hosted by Lucinity the other day and it was to launch a new product. Luke, that was good fun. What was that event all about again? Um, yeah, g- generative AI is,
1: um, I think, very much a topic du jour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the word, if we're speaking about founders, and we're speaking about tech, and we're speaking about bubbles, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, it's it's trite, it's cliche to talk about game changers, but I think I'll uh, I'll leave everybody with that thought.
0: Okay, I think. I've met a lot of, work with a lot of reg tech companies, and one that I wholeheartedly endorse the leadership team of is Lucinity. Fantastic people, great company, one of the good ones. Uh, good. And they're socials. building building impressive stuff. Um, what about what about Moody's? What's what's the big news out of Moody's?
2: There's always there's news every day. Um, but what I would suggest is, who obviously know ran for the the ratings agency. I. I would um encourage people to go and look more at the Moody's analytics side, which is actually a, a bigger part of the business these days, but it's all the software and analytics. And depending on what type of risk they're interested in, there's probably something for them. Um there's some new research out that Mark have done a fantastic job on around third-party risk management. And if I can be so shameless as to uh to come listen to the KYC decoded podcast as well. Great as name. RegTech Tech Legends. Great name. Um the the two are clearly the leaders in podcasting after growing barriers that money fails obviously uh but yeah no if anyone wants to reach out and talk to me anything risk i'm fairly active on linkedin and happy to connect
1: and i would say that realistically uh if you haven't accessed this podcast by way of it you must go and check out barker white's new website um I would, <laughs> like, I would like i, I would like to echo Alex's point um that if you are in or around RegTech in any sort of role uh and you're not speaking to tom richardson then you're probably doing oh, something kind. of well you
2: take you can take the sales guy off, off his sales call but it's going to come out somewhere there so. you go. We, <laughs> and
0: we love to see it gents we'll have to do this again thank you so much for your time thanks guys take care. speak to All you soon Thank you.